I may not have a dad joke for you first thing in the morning, but I have a dad story, and it's less than 48 hours old. So my sermons are typically done about noon on Friday, so I couldn't insert it. This is total ad lib, but it's Friday night. It's about 8, 8.30 p.m., and my kids, 9, 7, 5, are getting ready for bed. And I recognize that my middle son has left his glasses outside and um, some other things as well. So I say, hey, Hawks, I need you to go outside, pick up your stuff. He goes, sure thing, Dad, will do. And he's out and he goes to the door in nothing but his tidy whities And I was like, no, 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 son, you got to put something on first. And he goes, oh yeah, that's right. Grabs a hat, throws his hat on, and then books it out the door. And I'm thinking, I love this kid so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for First John in the last couple of months of understanding and meeting the God of love. And God, as we wrap it up today, may it be obvious the passion, the enthusiasm, the confidence that God wants us to know in who his son is and what he has done for us. And so as we go through it, Lord, may my words fall down so your words would be lifted up. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think back to the best advice your dad ever gave you. So that's gonna change a little bit, right? It's gonna be different if you're an elementary student, it's gonna be different if you're going off to college, it's gonna be different if you're about to get married or buy your first house or, or have your first kid. The best advice your dad ever gave you. I looked some stuff up online, but I also asked a few of our staff members and I liked what our staff members said way more than what I found online. So here's one of them. Set goals for yourself. So if you want to buy a house, if you want to get a car, if you want to go to school, if you want to have a good marriage, what are you going to do to get there? Maybe you remember the movie Alice in Wonderland and that scene where the Cheshire cat looks at her and says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. What are the goals that you have for your life? Personal goals, financial goals, relationship goals, work goals, what are they? I like this next one. Life is hard, ask for help. And so maybe one of your goals is, I want to buy a house, whether that's a condo, a duplex, a single family home, whatever it might be, I want to buy a house. Well, how do you start? Um, how much money should you put down? What mortgage broker should you go see? What part of town do you want to live in? Um, do I want to buy something while I'm single and I can have roommates live with me? Is it something I can grow into? Who do I talk to? I was talking with one of my good friends and she said, uh, I'm really thinking about opening a coffee shop. And I said, oh, my sister owns a coffee shop. I'll connect the two of you so you can talk about what that means and what that looks like. And she came back to me and said, your sister was a wealth of information. Third piece of dad advice, stay out of debt. So we're talking about homes or cars or going to school or starting your brand new married life together. Wherever possible, Stay out of debt. I know for myself personally, uh, I went to Bible college. It was fairly expensive, so I had to take a year off just to make sure I'd graduate without this enormous load of debt. You might be thinking, Dave, where does this come from? When I was opening my Bible this past week, my 1984 version of the New International Version, the closing piece of 1 John says, concluding remarks. So what ties all these things together? John is going to talk to us over these next nine verses, and seven times he's going to say, we know, we know the confidence that we have in Jesus. We, we know of our assurance. We know of the victory that's going to come. And so the big idea pulling all of this together is, do we know the God of love and the confidence that he gives us as his sons and daughters? 
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. If you're in the room, there should be a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. Of course, you can grab your phone or tablet and hop online as well. 1 John isn't the same as the Gospel of John. 1 John is at the back of the Bible, so you would flip back to Revelation, then go back a little bit, you'll hit 1 John. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. When John starts writing this letter, He starts off by saying, I witnessed Jesus himself. And I was reflecting on that this past week. Think about what John saw. He was there at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And a dove came down and lighted on Jesus. He was chosen to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples, which means he saw healings take place. He saw Jesus walk on the water. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus go to a party and goes, there's not enough wine. Let's take this water and make it a great party that everyone's going to remember. He saw people uh, raised from the dead. He saw five loaves and a couple fish feed thousands of people. And then John stood at the foot of the cross and watched his friend be crucified. Three days later, he saw that same friend resurrected from the dead. And for 40 days, Jesus continued to talk to John and the other disciples. 10 days after that, um, they're in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. And John and Peter and the rest of the disciples and about 120 men and women all gathered together are praying, asking God to show up. What is this gift that Jesus promised? And the Holy Spirit comes in like this rushing wind and gives them fire above their heads and they start speaking in different languages. And uh, John's good friend Peter stands up and proclaims the gospel and 3,000 people get baptized that day. And John is saying, I saw that. And so when he wraps up his letter... He can say, have confidence in your salvation. Have confidence because I was there. I'm the last remaining disciple alive. I saw what took place. How's he say it? Picking up in verse 13. If you like following along word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what he hears, and if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Last week, I mentioned that John is um, perhaps the most clearest of all um, biblical authors as to the reason he writes. And I think you'll find this interesting. At the end of his gospel in John, he writes this. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'd have life in his name. And again, again, at the end of his letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. Similar, but not identical. The gospel is written so that people might believe. The epistle is written to people who already believe that they would have assurance in their belief. And for John's original audience, this is important because they've lost confidence in Jesus. These false teachers have come into their homes and into their churches, and they're saying, Jesus didn't have a physical body. Don't worry about sin that much. It's not that big of a deal. Love people. No, no, no. You just love those who look like us, act like us, and talk like us. 
And so John is writing to them and say, have confidence in who Jesus is. The physical resurrection is important. I saw it. I touched him. And it's important to us because we're reminded we're going to have a physical resurrection and our bodies are going to be perfect and blameless and like Olympic athletes. Our character is important. People are going to look to us and Jesus says we are the light of the world. And he's helping us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to have confidence in our salvation. Now, our struggles might not be the exact same as they were 2,000 years ago. False teachers typically don't bring up the resurrection, although occasionally. But if you're like me, most of your friends are saying things like, why does it matter? And so we respond by saying, here is why it matters. It matters because we believe we have sinned and fallen short of the glory and the holiness and the perfection of God. And there's a gap between that. And we believe that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead so that he might bridge that gap and everyone who believes in him has eternal life. The opposite thing is happening with the whole love piece, right? For the false teachers of that day, they are saying love only those who look like us, act like us, and talk like us. The false teachers of this day say love is love and don't you dare correct anybody on how they behave or act themselves. But thinking about dads today, we love our kids and therefore we correct them. We discipline them. And that shows how much we love them. Whether 2,000 years ago or today, the big idea remains the same. Keep your eyes on Jesus. One of the benefits, says John, is that this gives you access to God. Looking at verses 14 and 15, this is our confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That phrase, hears us, means he will carefully consider what is being said. Now, some of you have young families. Some of you might have young grandkids. Or maybe you look back and remember climbing into your own dad's lap. But there's that beautiful picture of a dad who loves you so much. Talk to me about your day, the good things and the bad. Talk to me about the struggles and the challenges. Talk to me about the joys and the triumphs. Talk to me because I love you. You don't walk up to your dad and just say, hey, dad, can I get a new Ferrari? Or hey, can you beat up that bully at school that's making my life miserable? But you might talk to your dad and say, hey, dad, I need a ride to my friend's house. Dad, something really tough is happening at work, and I know you have wisdom. What would you do? The idea of praying according to God's will isn't some sort of hidden mystery either. It means to pray in accordance with what the Bible already teaches about God. And I think for most of us, our prayers are already in line with that. When you pray, what do you pray for? Well, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with love. Forgive my sins. Pray for my family or pray for the sick person or I don't know what to do at work or there's this big decision coming up and I don't know which way to go. God loves you and he knows what you need and he knows what's best for his kingdom. His prayer doesn't mean we get everything we ask. It means we receive what God knows is best. When my kids walk up to me and say, hey dad, can you get us Slurpees tonight? I use discernment. Is my wife putting them to bed? Then yes. Is it me? Then no. Because dads know what's best. But how much more the wisdom of God taking your prayer requests and understanding and taking this is what we're going to do and this is what we're not going to do. Now I want to hit the pause button for just a moment before we get into this next section. 
A couple of weeks ago, we had our annual general meeting, and it was a pretty normal AGM. We voted on the budget, we voted on new board members, and that was pretty much it for the, the really important parts of the meeting that needs to get done. But then we talked about um, what's happening in ministry. And so our kids pastor, youth pastor, worship pastor, adult pastor all stand up and they talk a little bit about what's happening in their different areas of ministry. And the people go, oh, that's, that's really neat. I didn't know that. That's an interesting stat or story. And then I come up and I say, let me t- pull back the curtain a little bit. What are we doing as a church? And right now, I'm really happy with how things are going. Love that our church is growing, that we're seeing people get baptized, that there's this passion and this joy and this excitement among our staff and the church family and the board, and there's this overall engagement. But I do have a piece of holy discontent. And so as I shared two weeks ago, so I share with you now, we don't pray enough. Now, maybe you show up on Sunday mornings and you go, that seems like enough prayer. You prayed at the beginning of the service and Pastor Joel came up and gave the pastoral prayer and you prayed at the beginning of your message and at the end of your message, that seems pretty good. Service is fine. We don't have a pre-service prayer team. We don't have a group of people packing that prayer room out saying, God, come and change lives. We're not praying for the music. We're not praying for the preaching. We're not praying for our kids who are upstairs. We need to start praying. I would love to see that prayer room filled with people saying, God, come in and transform our lives. Nor do we have a post-service prayer team. And there's times where Joel or David or myself are preaching and we're thinking, man, we just finished talking about um, Pentecost and we want to pray for people to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We just talked about uh, spiritual gifts and we want people to be passionate about praying for their spiritual gifts and learning how to use that in the church and in the, the world at large. Or we just prayed about hard questions and people are thinking, man, I don't know how to share the gospel and we want to invite you forward and be prayed for. I love this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with this deep conviction. And yeah, we talked about it in the announcements, but I wanted to give a few minutes in the middle of the message. Do you want to be part of that prayer team where you say, man, I could totally do this. It would be 10, 15 minutes after the service, maybe 30 minutes before the service, and you say, I want to be a part of that. Every week, We say in our announcements, text new or text connect to that phone number. You can text whatever you want. You can text, hey, Joel, hey, David, who's here right now? Keep them busy. 587-912-0002. I want to be part of this. Because who knows what God wants to do next? But as a church, as exciting as things are, as wonderful as God is moving, we want to join with him and say, God, we want more. I'll hit the play button and get back to the regularly scheduled sermon. John wants us to have confidence in our sermon. John also wants us to have counsel in intercession. I'm going to read these next two verses slowly. They are tough. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There's a movement here from the first couple of verses to the next couple of verses from personal prayer to intercessory prayer, from personal prayer to how do I pray for others? And there's a number of questions here that made me really think, well, I am trying to figure out what does this mean? So if you ask great questions, hopefully you get great answers. And one of the questions I had was, well, what does that word brother mean? First John was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word is fantastic. It's adelphos. You want to say that with me? Adelphos. 
and it has five different meanings. You can see them on the screen behind me. It means a biological brother. So you have the same parents, or you have the same mom or dad. It's a biological connection. It means that there's a national ancestry. So we're part of the Baptist General Conference. We're a Swedish Baptist church. I'm Swedish, you're Swedish. Hey, brother, how's it going? It's fellow man. And so everybody you meet, you're walking down the street, and you say, hey, brother, how's it going? It's a bond of affection. So even though I am a Christian with an ancestry from Europe, I can go to my soccer game and talk to my Muslim friends from the Middle East and say, hey, brother, it's that bond of affection. And finally, it's for the Christian believer, where we look at one another and say, we are part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. And so John uses, between his gospel and his epistle, brother 25 times. He uses only the word Adelphos to say it. So that's not helpful at all. And so I go back and I go, okay, well, um, how does he use it? In context, is this um, a biological relationship? Is this an ancestral relationship? Is this a um, we're all Christian believers relationship? The answer is yes. John uses it every which way. And so you look at that first verse and you go, well, then what does it mean? Well, what is the gospel of John and the epistle of John about? That you might believe and that you might have assurance in your belief. And the more I was reflecting on this word Adelphos, I thought John is purposely being ambiguous. Who do you pray for? Your friend who is sinning. Well, if he doesn't know Jesus, you pray for that friend so that he would know Jesus. You pray that the Holy Spirit would convict him. You pray for your own boldness and courage to share the gospel with him. You pray that when he sees Jesus and he meets with people in church or in small group or comes to Summerfest in August, that he would be so amazed at the love and depth of conviction of Jesus that he would say, I'm in. But it's also praying for your Christian brother. And you see your Christian brother or sister and they're sinning and you say, God, help them to recognize their sin. Help them to recognize that they shouldn't talk to their spouse that way or they shouldn't yell like that or I know that they have a habitual sin and they haven't been able to get over that. So God, we pray that you would change their hearts and their lives. God, uh, John is saying, pray for them that they might see and be captivated by the awe and the wonder of Jesus. Second question. There's a sin that leads to death. I remember being in high school and reading that for the first time and thinking, hey, youth pastor, you want to maybe put that up there somewhere that we can follow this? I was, I was pretty confident it would be something fairly significant like rape or murder or polka music or something like that where we don't want to have anything to do with that. But what does it mean? Three things. It could mean a heinous offense. It could mean murder or rape or something terrible in regards to uh, injustice that takes place. But that's not what it means. And we know that because we see the Apostle Paul, before he became called by Jesus, was murdering Christians. And then goes on to write, most of the New Testament. So we know that's not it. We know in the Old Testament, sexual sin happens over and over and over again. Um, David, uh, the second king of Israel, was considered a man after God's own heart, and he committed sexual sin. So it's not that. Is it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So when we get to the Gospels, we read this in Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, says Jesus, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. This is an unforgivable sin. 
but I don't think you have to worry about, I've said it once. Maybe you've heard me say this before if you've been around for a length of time. God gives you what you want. If you want to spend time in eternity with Jesus and believe in him, God says, absolutely. But if you say, I want nothing to do with Jesus and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that's real or genuine or he is who he says he is, and God gives you exactly what you want and you spend eternity apart from him in hell. Which leads us to the third part. A deliberate and persistent rejection of Jesus. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is real. We find that over and over in the Gospels. But what have we been saying nearly every single week in this series on 1 John? These false teachers show up and they say, Jesus is not real. We don't need to believe in him. He was just some sort of spirit. And so John is saying, don't pray for them. It's a waste of your time. Now let's see the forest for the trees. What does that look like in practice? This is what it looks like. If you see a friend, Christian or non-Christian, caught in sin, pray for them. If you see somebody who is deliberately rejecting Jesus over and over and over again, John is saying, don't waste your breath. Now, you might read that and go like, it can't possibly say that. We see it actually a couple of times. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 11. Um, We see it also in Jeremiah chapter 7. And he says, do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. I will not listen when they call to me in their time of distress. Or in 1 Samuel, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Time is a limited resource. I know a number of our uh, church family is in sales, and so I can use a sales analogy, I can use a gospel analogy. If you're spending time with somebody as a sales rep and you keep knocking on that same door and they say, we don't want what you sell, we don't want your product, stop coming here. Why would you keep going to that organization? where you can go to another organization and sell your product and they love what you have to offer. And John is saying it's the same thing with the gospel. If you bring somebody Jesus and they keep saying, we don't want Jesus, we want nothing to do with Jesus, stop talking to us about Jesus, why are you wasting your breath when the rest of the world needs to know him? Pastor Joel and I have a friend who is a lead pastor of a well-known church. He's walked away from Jesus and totally left the faith. He's not interested in Jesus anymore. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying the exact same thing. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Confidence in salvation. Counsel and intercession. Certainty and victory. Four times we're going to read this idea of We know, listen to verses 18 to 21. We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I would imagine most of you, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you're probably reading from the ESV, so you can follow along word for word from the NIV because that's arguably the most popular translation. 
The NIV takes these uh, few verses and puts them all together. It's one paragraph, so you don't really see what's taking place. If you have an ESV in front of you, you'll notice there's three different paragraphs because John wants you to understand we know the assurance in victory, the confidence in victory, the certainty in victory. If you have your physical Bible in front of you, you might even want to take a pen and circle it or underline it. If you have a digital Bible, you might want to highlight it. John wants you to know the God of love. He wants you to know the assurance of salvation. He wants you to know certainty of victory. And you can feel this confidence. We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We brought it up earlier in the series, but people miss or just need to be reminded. John is not saying that Christians have stopped sinning and live perfect lives. John is saying that we do not continue to commit the same sin over and over and over again. Most of us in this room are going to say something hurtful this week. We're going to lose our temper. We're going to speak with the wrong tone of voice. We're going to speak behind somebody's back. We're going to swear we're going to cuss somebody out in traffic. It's going to happen. But then we ask forgiveness of the person we hurt or of God if we were in our car. And we say, God, forgive me for that. Friend, forgive me for that. That is not the way I want to live. I really appreciate how John Stott says it. New birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God, incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. And yet we have this assurance that even if we do sin, even if we do fall short of God's perfection, that God says, I forgive you, it's going to be okay. Both the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and uh, John um, talking about Jesus in chapter 10 say these powerful words. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 10, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Because we have this certainty and victory. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All of us in this room, all of us watching online, we're born into this world. And the first thing we do is we, we learn how to walk. We learn how to talk. Our parents teach us a little bit of right from wrong. We go to school. We get married. We have jobs. We have kids of our own. We just live lives. Our friends who don't go to church, what are they thinking about right now? I'm thinking about God. They're thinking about, well, if my kid's soccer game got canceled because of the rain, is there going to be a makeup sometime? Do I need to be aware of that? Where is brunch going to be? Are we meeting at the restaurant, at my brother's house, or at my dad's house? Where exactly are we meeting? The world is not pictured as struggling vigorously against the devil, but lying quietly, almost unconscious in Satan's grasp. But then something happens. Someone loves you so much, your parents, a good friend, a family member that says, Have you, has anyone told you about Jesus? Has anyone told you about the son of God who came on a rescue mission for you? Where we have died and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus in his perfection lived a holy and perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the grave, and is coming back, and that promise is available to anybody who believes in Jesus. My boys are in grade three and grade two. And they said, Dad, we don't want to read the kids' Bible anymore. Give us the real stuff. And so my older son likes the Old Testament. My newer son, my newer son, I guess he is newer. <laughs> he likes the New Testament. 
And so we were walking through the first couple chapters of Job. And if you're not familiar with Job, it's basically the story of how Job has an amazing life. He has wonderful kids. um, He's wealthy. And Satan comes up to God and says, of course Job loves you. Look at how good his life is. And And God says to Satan, you can do anything to him. Just don't take his life. And so we read these first couple chapters. And I said to my boys, what did we learn? Here's what they came up with. Satan has no power except what God gives him. We know we belong to God. We know the world belongs to Satan. We know who has the final victory. And so there's this confidence, this assurance. And John is writing to us 2,000 years ago, and he's writing to us today, see the good news, have confidence in who Jesus is. Round three. We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Knowing the God of love. That's how we titled 1 John. Maybe you're in this room right now. Maybe you're watching online and you're thinking, David has talked about this over and over again, but I'm not quite sure I believe in Jesus. What's stopping you? What's that stumbling block? What's that hurdle in your way? Or is it actually gone? Or you're at that place where you think, I do believe in Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus because this sounds way better than what the world has to offer. And if you believe this, will you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, please forgive me for my sins. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life for me and for the whole world. I believe that you sent your son to die and rise again so that I might have eternal life. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, whether you're in the room or online, praise God, welcome to the family. You can talk to me after the service or somebody um, in the foyer, or you can text 587-912-0002. You'll be immediately talking to Joel or David. For the rest of us in this room, summer vacation's about to happen. Some of us have to work way harder if we're in construction. Some of us are looking forward to the events of where we're going to go on holidays. Maybe you're going to the mountains. Maybe you're going overseas. If you're really lucky like me, you're going to Toefield. No jealousy here, folks. Toefield, this guy. But we want to make sure that we take a vacation with God, not a vacation from God. Starting next week, we're going to look at Genesis. We're calling it the beginning. And you're going to hear from me and Joel and Pastor David. But we also have some wonderful guest speakers. Kevin Schuler, the national director of our denomination, is going to be in. Uh, Brian Mirholm, one of our mission partners, is going to be speaking. Uh, Keith Taylor, the former lead pastor at Beulah, is going to be here. And Sid Coop, um, who oversees Truth Matters, a national ministry, and he's been here at least a dozen times. It is going to be wonderful. So whether you're at the lake or in the mountains or Toefield, Alberta, hop online and watch. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join me on the platform. The very last line in 1 John says this. Dear children, keep away from idols. And some people look at that and they go, oh, that's just some sort of throwaway line where John just wants something to be focused on. But think about what's been happening every single week. Focus on Jesus. 
There's lots of false teaching. And John is saying, but focus on Jesus. Dave, I have anxiety at work and at home. And John is saying, focus on Jesus. Dave, all this stuff is happening in my life right now, and life is just so full. And he's saying, focus on Jesus. I learned something this past week that I had never thought of before. And it so transformed what I was going to say at the end of this message. I have to share it with you. In the beginning, God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The beginning of John, we read that Jesus is with the, the Trinity. We know that he pre-existed. And then what happens? He's born again. So he leaves the richness of heaven, the glories of heaven, and is born again into earth. Why? So that we who are born in earth might be born again into the glories of heaven. This is the God of love. This is our confidence that we might know victory in Jesus. Awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 1 John. Thank you for introducing us to the God of love. And may we be so engaged and captivated with awe and wonder that we would go, and as David said in the announcements, that we would look and see what needs are around us. And that we would be people at work, at home, at play, who show the love of God and see life transformation in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives, that we might see this transformation. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.